Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And my name is Jeremy Swingle. And this is episode 36 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And as you can probably tell from our intro, this episode 36, we have a special guest. We are welcoming back to the show uh, uh, Jeremy Swingle of episode 18 fame. And he will be uh, talking with us through a series of different topics. And in fact, he's done some research prior to this episode that we're recording on some pretty nerdy out cool things with quiz mathematics and so forth that will be very interesting to get to. But we are going to be talking about Great West, the Great West Invitational Meet that just happened this last weekend, and all the various good things and not so good things and really awesome things that happened in that meet and surround the surrounding trip and stuff related to that meet. We'll talk about Kiever strategies and the differences therein. We've got a few questions from listeners that we're going to be uh, working ourselves through. And if we have time, we might even get into some Quizmaster prompts from the 2018 rulebook, the multiple answer designation, and maybe a few other topics if we have time. But with that, we're going to start with our first topic, which is the Great West Invitational Recap. And so, uh, yeah, what you, all three of us attended, uh, Jeremy, Scott, and myself uh, attended Great West. So, guys, what did you think? How did it go? I thought it was a great trip this, this year. It was memorable for all of the PNW folks, and we love getting together with Western Canada and Canadian Midwest. I think those are two of the finest districts out there, and so it's a pleasure to compete with them and hang out with all of them. Um, a little bit about the facility. So we were. this is our third year at Crow's Nest Lake Bible Camp, which is kind of partway up, if not very near the top of Crow's Nest Pass in Alberta. And I, I love the facility. It allows us to stay on Saturday night at the camp, so it's close enough to home. It's not as far as, say, Calgary or further into, further into Alberta. And there have been some small quibbles about the camp in the past, like um, they only have bunk beds. No nicer beds. Room three was kind of rustic in years past, and room one can get loud since it's the main kind of gathering area for everything. Now, I think all of those three are definitely above the minimum requirements to begin with, and so I was totally fine with them. But all three, I think, were improved for this year. Room three was remodeled, so it was a bit nicer. I didn't find noise to be quite as much of an issue as it is sometimes in room one. And, well, I guess the the bunk beds were the same, but... um, that's always been totally fine for me. But overall, I think it was a really fun and memorable trip. We didn't have any crises or anything like that. So as someone who plans the trip, that's always nice to have happen. Very cool. Jeremy, yeah. what did you think? <clears throat> yeah, I think um, I would echo everything Scott said. It's always a good time to um, to get together with uh, the two Western Canadian districts. And uh, they have great quizzers and uh, great coaches and officials and um yeah, it's always always a good opportunity. I'm really happy that we were able to take so many rookies this year, um, so many new people to the uh, the re- you know quizzing beyond just um, the PNW district to see the greatest quizzers of other districts, and um, and so that's always a, a good a good thing. I love seeing <laughs> it's it's a little bit like um, like going in the deep end, like just diving right in um, when you go from district level quizzing where there's usually only a few quizzers in each quiz who have uh, solid you know, command of the material, and then all of a sudden there's 12 people on stage <laughs> who um, 
who all know the material. So, so that's always fun to see and see people overcome those challenges. It's fun to coach, and I was a coach this time. Um, you get to teach a lot of new things. So, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I thought the facilities were really good, and, again, there's always things you can find to quibble about, but, um, but uh, I think it's a great location for all three districts and a good time. The Quizzers just had a blast especially on Saturday Saturday night, staying up and playing games and going to bed late with making friends with the other two districts. And, yeah, I think it was a successful trip. I had a lot of fun. I know the quizzers had a lot of fun and uh, saw a lot of great quizzing. So that's my recap. Very cool. Well, so what did you guys think were some areas where things were specifically pretty good and areas where things could be improved upon for, for next year. I mean, I, I, I suppose I should probably call on myself and, and go first. I, I mean, I thought like you, like you guys were saying, having a way where, you know, having, having hosting overnight hosting facilities on site was really fantastic because it allowed for, especially Saturday night when quizzing was done, it allowed for the quizzers to hang out together in the main fellowship hall area uh, into the wee early hours of the morning, which of course made them incredibly exhausted the next morning. But I mean, they developed fantastic relationships, and I, I think that was a really wonderful uh, thing for uh, to happen for that meet. Uh, the food I know had been kind of a questionable thing in in the past. Um, I think it it seemed like it was better. I, I I hadn't gone last year, so I have nothing to compare to. Um, still seemed like it was kind of borderline. Uh, but I think could, you know, there, there's areas for improvement there, but, um, but overall wasn't, wasn't, wasn't terrible. Uh, I happen to be in room three and let me tell you the, the it's definitely rustic. I think, <laughs> I think that's, that's probably a good word for it. I think room one was fantastic. Um, very nice, great, uh, uh, location for, for quizzing. Uh, room two's not, uh, wasn't too bad. I, I don't think I ever saw quizzing in room two. Uh, but we practice in room two. Uh, room three was, um, a bit on the echoey side and the temperature kept fluctuating between, uh, very cold and very hot because we had a, th- we had a, a heater that was sort of, um, it was an overachieving heater, but then, uh, the doors would swing open and, uh, I, no kidding. The temperature would drop, uh, drop by, you know, maybe 15 degrees, uh, Celsius, within the span of, uh, just a few, just a, just a few seconds, uh, 30, 30, 40 seconds. And, and I'd go from, you know, being kind of hot and needing to fan myself to putting on some layers and wrapping my scarf around my neck and so forth. Um, so <laughs> it, it never quite equalized out for us, but that being said, the quizzing was fantastic. Um, it, it I, I want to echo what, uh, the other guys said, quizzing with, uh, CMD and Western Can is fantastic. These are two great districts. Uh, great people in the district, great quizzers, great leaders, great coaches, a uh, great staff. Um, and that part was absolutely fantastic. But I mean, from your guys' perspective, what are, what are maybe some areas for improvement for next year? I think the food was definitely a step up from the past two years. It was, it was below borderline the last two years. Um, I think we've been pretty spoiled the years that we were at. Um, Glacier, no, what was it called in Hungry Horse, Montana? I thought Glacier it was, Bible Camp. Glacier Bible Camp, yeah. Glacier Bible Camp. The food there was amazing, and I think every year the Internationals is at, is at Crown. The food is quite good with a good selection. But, um, yeah, Crow's Nest Lake is kind of on par with Summit Grove in its quality. But it was it was markedly better this year than it has been the past two years. 
Now, I'm going to have to disagree with you there, Scott. I think Crow's Nest Lake is a huge step up from Summit Grove Camp. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, not to do a huge excursus on food quality, um, <laughs> but man, Summit Grove. I mean, in 2011, that's you weren't there that year, Scott, so maybe it was better the year you went. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not a fan of uh, serving up below-quality food to... 60 to 100 youth who are already sleep-deprived and trying to compete and use their brains. Yeah, for me, it was less about the... It was less about the taste of the food and more about the the sort of the nutritional quality of it. Um, I was remarking in some cases there were meals that had that were very, very light on protein. And I was kind of thinking to myself, well, this is not going to bode well for, you know, keeping the quizzers uh, focused. And especially when you're fighting off sleep deprivation, uh, I think that area could be improved upon. That being said, nothing was was spoiled. Nothing was bad. Uh, they did have fresh fruit and vegetables. I think that was great. Um, and there was definitely a variety of, of food, to some degree, a variety in each meal. So I felt like, you know, I've had camp food that's been better, um, but... Uh, you know, I don't know that I would overly complain about it other than to say, you know, maybe some more protein options in all of the meals would have been a good thing. Now, I didn't get to go around to all the quiz rooms uh, and see for myself. I did hear from a few of our quizzers that um, some of the Quizmaster reading consistency wasn't super awesome. So that was just a, an anecdote from a few of our quizzers. I didn't recall any other comments on officials. Yeah, I heard that too. Um, I heard that from both PNW people and some non-PNW people about Quizmaster pacing. Uh, the, I think that bothered me less, I think, than maybe the questions themselves. Um, I think there were some good questions here and there, but there were a lot of questions that seemed um, kind of like what we were talking about in some ep- several episodes in the past, questions that were technically valid but bordering on uh, maybe being too clever by half or just being kind of awkward relative to much better questions that could have been written on the same material. But what, what did you guys think about those things? Yeah, I think um, I think the questions were actually pretty good quality in comparison to um, some years in the past. It, it's varied from year to year, but it's always you're always hyper analyzing these questions because quizzes are jumping on like two, three syllables. So um, you're always thinking about every question when you're sitting there coaching. Um, but there were a few um, that were technically valid, but but I didn't think were great. The one that sticks in my mind is the multiple answer. Um, what while the world rejoices <laughs> um, with the answer, you will weep and mourn, um, you know, and I distinctly and, remember. And you'll, gr- and you'll grieve. Oh, oh, sorry. Maybe I'm quoting from the 1984 NIV. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so that um, I thought was a very tricky question and also probably better phrased as while the world rejoices, what instead of, you know, just to get a little bit, of key material there and quicker and also make more grammatical sense. And then I also, uh, one thing that is a huge pet peeve of mine is finish the verses that begin with Jesus answered. Like the whole point of the finish this designation (laughs) is to start it at Jesus's speech um, or whoever is speaking, you know, as well as it is written quotes and stuff. But, you know, I just didn't understand Um, technically valid. It's not really challengeable. You can't really throw the question out, but, I think uh, not good, but I don't know. For the most part, I actually didn't have too much to complain about with any of the quiz mastering or the um, 
or the questions. I, th- I thought it was good quality overall. I, and I, I was in know. all three rooms, unlike you two. <laughs> I was going around all three rooms. So, And I don't know if this is specific to West Can or if Canadian Midwest would have done this also if they would have hosted, but at least two of the answer judges in the rooms were full-time or regular quiz masters within Western Canada. So it's it's awesome having that level of um, official, in essence, not in a negative way, but kind of being demoted. They're, they're serving a role that they're overqualified for, but that makes them extremely qualified for it. And I sure benefited from that sort of top-notch answer judging. Yeah, definitely. There were some tough rulings to make, too, especially on chapter verse reference questions now. Um, since we've had some more recent rule changes on those with like the 50-50 questions and stuff, there were some tough rulings to make. So, um, And I thought mostly the right decisions, you know, I, I pretty much agreed with them um, or agreed with them after giving it some thought. You and I debated one for a while, Scott, mm-hmm. um, and I eventually came to your opinion on it. So, Yeah, I, and I also thought what you thought about key verse question types. I, w- I was actually quite pleased with the verses that were selected for key verse questions. There have been some, especially years, some years at internationals, but occasionally years at Great West where I think some verses being selected for key verses are really not spiritually significant compared to a lot of the verses around them. Um, but this year, I think the verses being selected were really good. I think there was a pretty small percentage that I personally would quibble over, and that's just me, and I'm sure you would get a similar percentage just because people are different. Um, and so I thought the verse selection was awesome. But I thought the type selection was not very good. Um, we have finished these two and finished this and the next and finished this for specific reasons. And if you're going to not apply those reasons, then I don't really see the point to, to even having those question types. Um, and then the other thing that was really kind of jarring for me was there were a lot of situation questions asking about whom and to whom where neither of those things were stated. And so they were kind of having to be inferred by the quizzers. Now, almost all the time the about whom's were about Jesus, and it is pretty clear in the text that it's about Jesus, but a lot of the to whom's were... Like there was there was nothing in the text as far as like Jesus answered or Jesus said to them. Um, it was just you had to like read back a verse or two or three in the context to know like who had started this line of thought and the people now talking were replying to that person. And to me, there's so many good about whom's and to whom's. Um, maybe not. There's there's not a ton of good about whom's, but there's enough good ones that I wouldn't reach into this pool because I saw extremely well prepared situation specialists really struggle on these. Um, I was calling them weekly implied, where they had to kind of, I mean, you could argue they were having to interpret the text, but they were really having to go back multiple verses to find something something that was not explicitly stated to answer the situation question. Yeah, I noticed that too. Um, and I think that's really tricky because the rule book does not specify very much about like what needs to be said in order for certain situations to be asked. And there's a lot of circumstances in the Gospels and in Acts where um, the text will say, you know, Jesus said, blah, 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 blah. But, like, contextually, it's really obvious that he's speaking to a person, even though the verb that's being used is not, like, a a verb that would necessarily imply that, like, replied, asked, answered, retorted, um, debated with, you know, whatever. And there's no to him or to them. It's just Jesus said. Um, And, you know, some question writers will will want to write that as a to whom even be, you know even though it doesn't say the to whom just they're assuming it that it's clear from the context and uh, it's hard for me to say that those questions are wrong 
I suppose, <laughs> as long as the quizzer can get it. But it, it isn't the question writing style I use. I typically will only do a to whom if it says replied or answered or to him. Uh, the about whom was definitely definitely different than I'm used to. Because um, off the top of my head, there are only two places in John where an about whom is explicitly stated. Um, so there were a lot more about whom's, probably one every other quiz just about that I saw. And uh, that was different. Um, but again, just a difference of question writing style, not um, not like actual in, invalid questions or even bad questions necessarily. Now, I, um, I sit on the CQLT rules subcommittee where we chat about rules changes. I think there's five of us. And it was one of the international's question writers or editors who raised the the question about implied situation answers was what it was called probably about a year ago. Um, and we discussed it a good deal. I can't remember if we got together on a phone call, but at least over email quite a bit. And what we kind of came to is we definitely did not want to outright say that any implied situation answer is invalid. We didn't want to put that sort of rule in the rule book. But we also couldn't think of a good way to write in the rule book that an implied situation answer um, while not needing to be 100% explicit, should be very clear or not. Um, um, it should be strongly implied, but any sort of language we could come up with was going to be incredibly subjective. And so I think in this case, unless you're going to roll out tricky or misleading, which I think you could, um, there's nothing invalid about these questions. But I think a lot of times we're discussing questions that, while not outright invalid, should not be written. <laughs> And I think a bulk of these about whom and to whom's should just not have been written, though they are um, technically valid. Yeah. I mean, there were, especially since there's so many other options to write that that are stronger questions. I think that's really where my beef came down. None of these, well, there were a couple that I thought were marginally invalid, from, but, but very rarely, right? I think the vast majority were fine. From a legal perspective, a valid perspective, they just, there were so many better options available, I think was uh, really where, where sort of I came down on it. But that being said, um, uh, Scott, do you want to kind of walk us through a little bit about the the, the stats from the meet, and then uh, I want to talk a little bit about the road trip itself, because I mean, yeah, certainly we were going up there to quiz and to officiate and have a lot of fun with quizzing, but certainly the road trip is a huge positive component to the Great West overall experience, but why don't we start with stats and then head to the road trip? Definitely. Before we start on stats, one quick thing back on the questions. Yeah, if we're talking about outright invalid questions, I came across one, which is pretty astounding because I wrote a lot of the questions for PNW. I'm constantly like editing them. We've gone through four meets, and it still seems like I come up with three to seven a meet that are invalid. Um, and so I, I came across one that was invalid, Great West. So the, the quality of validity would validity was very high yeah i think i i think we came up with two in our room but yeah it was it was a very small number and the one that was invalid it was off by one word that it may have been phrased that way in a different version like in the esv or the 84 nav so um yeah but some stats so i have i have really good stats from great west for the last 19 years so since 2001 and since 2001 i have um, 382 data points on PNW quizzers. So that's quizzer plus year 
Um, I have 382 data points. So this year, Aiden um, got a 33.33 average, and that's a lot of threes already, but it was the 33rd best average (laughs) among those 382 data points. Um, Andrew got a 23.7, and that was 72nd best. So I think for people that haven't been to Great West and maybe are used to watching a lot of district quizzing, those averages do not seem very high, but um, Aiden being um, in the top 10% of all PNW Great West performances of the last really two decades is quite good. Uh, and then Timothy had a 17 average, and that was the 29th best average for a Great West rookie. Now, even though I think experience does benefit people at Great Western Internationals, you, I, I found that rookies do a lot better um, compared to how they do in future years than than they do looking at the just district quizzing. In district quizzing, quizzing, rookies definitely struggle compared to their later years, but it is not infrequent to have Great West rookies or internationals rookies put up really good scores. But Timothy did really well for a Great West rookie. Now... Another stat that I kind of keep is I total up the individual averages at Great West for a quizzer over their career because it kind of combines the number of times that they qualified for and went to Great West with how what they scored there. Um, so I have 165 unique quizzers that have attended Great West over those past 19 years. So Andrew has the eighth highest total. So he's got 122 um, in Great West averages over five appearances. Abigail is 14th. Aiden is 42nd in just two appearances. Lincoln is 54th in two appearances, and Sophie is 57th. So all of those quizzers, you know, Andrew, 8th, very high up there, and then even Sophie is in the top third. Those are current quizzers that have both been to Great West a good handful of times and done well while while they're there. And Andrew, his career Great West average is a 24, which is 17th best among quizzers over those 19 years. But... If you look at Quizzers with at least five appearances at Great West, it is third best. So That's quite really a, good. Quite a good um, Great West career. And the outlier there is Jeremy from Bainbridge, who averaged something like a, a 55 or a 60 over his six Great West appearances that I have data for. Um, so that's definitely an outlier. But Andrew is third among those with at least five appearances. And those are my stats. Very cool. Very cool. Well, so what about the road trip? Um, we, uh, you know, departed. So there were folks who were, uh, we, the official, I, I suppose, departure point was Alliance Bible Church in Covington, Washington, but there were teams that departed from much further away, uh, than that. We had a team that was departing from Dallas, uh, Oregon. We had a team that was departing from Madras, Oregon. So the Dallas team departed, headed north up on I-5 and then, uh, stayed overnight and met us. Or did they stay overnight, the, the Dallas team? So actually the, the two quizzers from Christ Central down in, um, Corvallis traveled to Dallas, which was a non-trivial amount of time. And then Dallas came up, two quizzers and a coach, picked up a Grace Harbor quizzer on the way and then stayed in Covington with quizzing families on Wednesday night before we departed. Wow. And then uh, we had a, a group coming up from Madras and they, uh, they went direct and met us uh, on the road after we had departed ABC. And uh, generally speaking, ABC was sort of our departure point in Covington, uh, Washington. And then from there headed, headed up to intersect with I-90. And then from there, progressed across i think we stopped at uh let's see what was our, uh, 
I know we stopped at Moses Lake for some food and then uh, wound up eventually in Spokane briefly. Uh, and then uh, finally for the night, uh, stopping in Coeur d'Alene. We had a great opportunity before we went to the hotel and before uh, dinner to go to uh, this beautiful park right on the water of uh, Coeur d'Alene uh, Lake. And uh, there's sort of a developed area and an undeveloped area, and the kids got to roam around and have a lot of fun. I think there was an impromptu snowball fight uh, that broke out between a few, and that was a lot of fun. Um, but it was just a wonderful bonding experience. Uh, Cuddy, of course, uh, spreading her infinite wisdom with Van Pool. Uh, organization in terms of like who's in what van at what, what particular leg and what sort of, uh, uh, activities were going to be going on in each particular van for each particular leg. And that was a lot of fun. And then, uh, the, the hotel, uh, you know, Thursday night in Coeur d'Alene was fantastic. Uh, they, they put out a pasta dinner for us that was great. And we had, uh, some great fellowship time there. Yeah. One thing I always forget about Cuddy organizing the vans is, she definitely she takes into account everybody's interests and makes sure she mixes them up between all the vans, depending on how many legs we're going to have for our whole trip. But not only that, she is an active participant in usually at least one van at well, not at least in probably one van at a time, <laughs> whether it's the mystery van or the encore van. And so it's not just kind of a a facilitator role. It's a it's very much an active participant in making sure the road trip is enjoyable and memorable for all the kids. Yes, indeed. She does a great job at it. I was in the Encore van uh, on the way back. Uh, let's see, it would, it would have been Sunday. And uh, let me tell you, so the entire van, it was. It, this was when we did the uh, girls' uh, van and the boys' van. And uh, the boys' van filled up, so there was an extra seat in the girls' van. And so I was, I was the... Uh, one exception to the girls van, I got to ride with the girls, uh, for a good chunk of the, the way back. And, uh, they, they pulled out Encore and it was the entire van versus Cuddy. And <laughs> I have, I'm, I think Cuddy won. Um, so, um, yeah, she, not only is she an active participant, but she's a very good <laughs> participant as well. I have played an Encore against, sorry, Scott. I just, needed to say i've played encore against cuddy before and she is a formidable opponent she knows just ridiculous amounts of songs <laughs> yeah formidable opponent uh insurmountable opponent i think uh so this was a van we had uh one two three four five six seven eight of us versus cuddy and uh yeah she she i i think we were holding our own for a little while but in the end she completely trounced us Cuddy and Encore is very interesting because I know that she is not cheating, but yet most of her song choices no one else has ever heard of. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> that is very true. They're, they're obviously real songs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you can tell when someone's making a song up on, off the top of their head. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Well, so then, uh, after, after Coeur d'Alene, so we stayed, uh, stayed up a little bit late in Coeur d'Alene, but not too badly. I think most people were in their racks like 10 or 11 or a little bit after 11 or something like that. And then we departed, uh, early, uh, Friday morning. We had some, some breakfast and then got out of there, went up to the border. And so, you know, Scott always is freaking out about the border both directions, but it, it seemed like it worked out pretty well this time, right? Yeah, it was really good, and it actually we've had no we've had no issues any of the years. There was only one issue, and um, there was a parent on the trip who could help resolve that. 
so we really haven't had any issues, but it kind of becomes a showstopper if we do. So right, I, right. I do not like the single point of failure, um, regardless of how low the probability is of failure. Yeah, indeed. Well, we made it across the border, and then we had a, a stop for lunch in Cranbrook, uh, which was fantastic for me because I got to go into my, I, I got to have my very first Tim Hortons experience. Uh, Jeremy, Jeremy, and I went to A and W for lunch along with a, a posse of other quizzers, and uh, and then afterwards to treat us uh, to a little bit of yummy, we uh, the two of us went over to Tim Hortons, which I don't know, Jeremy, have you been in one of those before? Oh, many times. Okay. <laughs> I did like, a term of school in Vancouver, BC, so uh, I've written okay. papers in Tim Hortons before. <laughs> okay, okay, cool. Yeah, I was I was definitely uh I was intimidated cuz everybody everybody had, a, had been explaining it to me as, "Oh, Tim Hortons, it's like Starbucks but but Canadian." And I walked in and I was like, "No, this is this is a much bigger operation. This is like I was overwhelmed by the amount of choice uh, that was presented to me. And so I just sort of like, uh, Jeremy, you order for the both of us. Go. <laughs> um, and it worked out. The donuts were fantastic. The coffee was good. Uh, it was not a negative experience at all. Um, other than the realization on the way out of Canada that there were no Tim Hortons, uh, in the U.S. So I'm a little bit sad about that. Um, actually a lot sad about that, but I don't know. I'll deal. Uh, so let's see what else happened. Um, from there, Cranbrook wise, we, uh, pretty much just headed uh, out towards the Canadian Rockies and up, up, up into the stratosphere and wound up at Crow's Nest. So like on the way back, it was just sort of the reverse trip uh, for folks. Uh, we, let's see, on the way back, we stopped. What was the place that we stopped at uh, Sunday for lunch? Cabela's in Post Falls, Idaho. Yeah, that was interesting. That was my first experience there. Um, kind of an interesting place to stop. I'd say so. It's not the, the type of uh, people or clientele that I normally rub shoulders with. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> You're Fair not enough. a hunter, Scott? No, I'm, I'm not a hunter. <laughs> well, it was definitely an interesting uh, spot and very pretty and then uh, continued on and said goodbye to the Madras folks and uh, worked our way back to Covington. And uh, it is kind of interesting and important to note that like for some folks, you know, I, I had forgotten about you know, a couple of our quizzers coming from uh, south of Dallas. But, you know, we had uh, some folks who were traveling uh, from Wednesday all the way through until Monday midday uh, to be able to get the entire process of getting up. Uh, crow's nest and back and so for you know some folks that was a uh, quite a huge investment uh, but hopefully a fun investment at that yeah i'm always grateful for all of the oregon folks who are willing to make that drive um it's awesome to have everyone who qualified you know be able to come on the trip and have a great time yeah indeed yeah very long very long journey uh over several days but uh very worth it in the end and in on that road trip, uh, when everybody was exhausted uh, Sunday and kind of halfway back to our destination, uh, Covington, uh, there was in the so I, I had mentioned in the girls' van we played uh, encore with Cuddy and lost, uh, but in the guys' van you did something uh, equally interesting, possibly even more interesting. So what did you talk about? What you guys did? Yeah, so um, we have determined what the lowest possible score you could achieve, quote-unquote, achieve, in a single quiz is. And by you, I mean a team, so the, the lowest team score. And um, it was a, a van full of all of the men 
<laughs> on the PNW trip, the last leg of the journey, Cuddy um, had all the guys together and all the gals together. And it was the very end of the trip, so we were tired, and uh, we decided it would be a good idea to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> and uh, now, th- at first, you think that would be like a, not that difficult to figure out. It would probably be something like negative 100, 200, you know, if, if everybody just keeps jumping and everyone on your team errors. But there's a lot of loopholes <laughs> that you can exploit to uh, decrease the score further. So... Uh, Scott, you might need to help me out with this. You were there, um, and uh, and we also had other quizzers helping us out with this. But um, essentially, to, to achieve the lowest possible score, um, which is far greater than minus 200, and we'll get there. Uh, I don't want to give away the, the ending too early. Um, but you, we have to exploit several different rules in the rulebook to get this score. So first off... Um, First off is that every second overruled challenge and or protest is minus 10 points. So uh, you can challenge and or (laughs) protest every single question in a quiz, assuming that there's at least one captain or co-captain still on the bench. So every question you can get, well, except for the first question, um, you can challenge and protest and get minus 10 for each, so for each, of for, them. For, each, for each, yeah. So it's a total of minus twenty. Um, now, so of course, this is all theoretically, you know, it's all theoretical because in practice, in practice, a quizmaster would probably literally <laughs> refuse to let a team continue if they challenged and protested, you know, the first three questions in a row or whatever. Um, but let's just say they do. Let's <laughs> let's <laughs> say you've got a really, really angry c- captain and a really angry uh, coach, and they just uh, want to challenge and protest everything. Well, so that's minus 20 for literally every question. Um, another uh, rule that we can exploit uh, a lot is, <laughs> this is actually the key to getting such a low score, is that you can deliberately forfeit a question. And if the officials think you are doing that, they, uh, what the rulebook says, you might need to help me out, Scott. Um, I'm, it I'm says, staring at it. Oh, okay, thank you. Do you want to just quote that rule for me? I will. If, in the judgment of the officials, a deliberate attempt is made to forfeit a question, an error will be charged and 10 points deducted from the team score. The next question will be numbered the same. All right, so so here's the key, here's the secret. Uh, By deliberately forfeiting questions, you can get an error without wasting a question um, on a toss-up for the other two teams. Of course, you cannot err on a toss-up. So... If you jump on question number one and deliberately forfeit it, whatever that means doesn't really matter. It's it's just the chal- uh, or the officials just have to think that's what you did. So we can leave aside the question of what you would have to do for the officials to think that. Um, we can safely leave that aside um, and just theorize. Okay, let's say you jump on question one and and you do forfeit it. Well, you get minus ten points and you get that magic error which you need to get a lower score. And question one gets redone. And here's the magic, is that you can challenge and protest question one as a toss-up for the other teams. And on the toss-up, one of the other two teams can jump up and forfeit their question as well, which would make one a bonus for the third team. So you can have, an pretty much this rule lets you get an extra minus 10 on every single question that you forfeit. 
And it also allows there to be an A and a B question on questions 1 through 15. So that's the magic of that rule. All right. I've got two questions really quick. So number one, when you were calculating this, you were basically assuming that all three teams were in on this plan then rather than just one team. Like like this was a scenario where it wasn't like one team was trying to get the lowest possible and the other two teams were being rational. This is rather a scenario where all three teams were trying to make sure that one team could achieve the theoretical lowest point, right? Uh, yes. And not only the three teams, but the officials as well. Yeah. The, the officials, officials have would... to be in on it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the officials would have to deliver, you know, they'd have to rule that every single question, or at least the first, that the first question in the A of every uh, numbered question, they'd have to rule that it was a deliberate forfeit. And they would also have to allow the challenges in the protest, you know. Oh, true. So. <laughs> well, one could argue that they couldn't not allow it without violating the rule book. But that point aside, the other <laughs> thing is you did account for the fact that, yes, in, say, question two, um, my challenge is can be overruled. That's minus 10. My protest can be overruled. That's minus 10. But in the first question, the first jump, my challenge doesn't give me a negative 10, right? Yes. Yeah, we factored that into the math. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Good. All right. Well, please continue then. Now, yes. and another, another thing is, once we get to the end, you'll the final number will be revealed, and you could you could easily calculate if the other teams were not complicit in this as well, what the total would be. You know, and it would be one third or two thirds of this grand total, which is still going to be a pretty massive and probably shocking number, even if you did not have the cooperation of two other teams. Yes, this is true. And of course, there's a little bit, since some of these rules are not used very often, there's certainly some interpretation involved in here. So for example, the rule that Scott quoted about forfeiting questions says um, that 10 points will be deducted and an error charged to the team. And the way that we are interpreting that rule, again, I've never seen this rule invoked in a quiz before, but the way we're interpreting it is that the error is a separate event from the minus 10 and therefore, it's actually a minus 20 when you forfeit, of course, assuming this is the second individual error or the third team error beyond. So this is actually minus 20. Um, and that's, you know, a technicality, I suppose, with the interpretation of that rule. Um, and of course, this is all for fun anyway, so it doesn't particularly matter so much. <laughs> um, but yeah, so some of this is up to interpretation. Okay, so beyond the, the forfeit rule, um, the other thing that is some people might might neglect to think about is the fact that fouls also give um, minus points. So um, each quizzer can have up to three fouls. Um, and is it the fourth team foul, Scott, uh, where it's minus 10? Yes, it is the fourth foul by anyone on the team that is negative 10, and then every subsequent foul. Right. So we obviously don't want quizzers to foul out because that means they can't err. <laughs> um, but from the fourth foul, team foul, to the tenth team foul, all of those are going to be minus 10 as well. Um, and we could just have different quizzers do it on different questions. Whoever isn't throw, you know, forfeiting a question can just get a foul if they want. Um, but we don't want any of them to foul out. So each will get two for a total of 10 team fouls. Um, uh, now, of it, course, if, if you wanted to, you could have, once a quiz has gotten two errors, you could have them foul out if you wanted to, and it would be the same as far as the score goes. Uh, so whatever you would want to do, I suppose. What were you going to say, Scott? So 
the forfeit a question rule is key for us to be able to have all of our quizzers commit errors um, because originally we were thinking it, we couldn't do it because every question that you air becomes a toss-up for the other team, and that's a whole question you can't do anything on. Um, and so the forfeit rule is why all five members of the team can basically air out. Now, with fouls, we did not have have such a limitation. So theoretically, on question one, you could have one, two, three, four of your quizzers um, foul on it. And the timing of those fouls doesn't really matter as long as none of them foul out before they've deducted the maximum possible points through other means. Right, yes. Um, okay, so I think that's the major stuff we have to talk about as far as the now, rules we're exploiting. But um, it, was, it was about at this point when we were kind of figuring this out, and part of the fun of it was we would get through a segment, and then someone would be like, wait, what about this extra way we can lose points? <laughs> so yeah. so it, was, it was at some point in here, you know, we're talking about like question three or four and all of this stuff about deliberately forfeiting questions, and then someone was just like, hey, we need to show up late for this quiz. Because <laughs> then which you was start hel- with zero instead of 20. <laughs> which was hilarious because at this point, 20 points was kind of a drop in the bucket. But it was like this flash of lightning, and we're like, yes, another 20 points that we cannot have on our score. (laughs) Yeah, that was a funny realization. Um, And, of course, people still kept finding little things. Like, when we first realized that we could forfeit the question and have one be re-asked as a toss-up, we weren't thinking at first that that means that we can challenge and protest the, the redone question and the bonus question. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, it was just all these different ways of, of subtracting points began adding up. So um, so basically, so we're exploiting all these rules, and we're discovering by question like four or five that we're losing 90 points in every single numbered question, um, you know, because you've got minus 20 for the challenge of the protest times three, so that's minus 60. You have a, a quizzer who's getting a foul, the fourth team foul or beyond, that's another minus 10. And then you have minus 10 for the error and minus 10 for the forfeiting of the question, which we were interpreting as separate from the error itself. Um, so are we ready for the grand total, Scott? Is that is it time? I think so. Okay, so um, the, minus, the, the lowest possible score that uh, we have discovered is theoretically possible in quizzing is a whopping negative 1590 points. <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> like, I, we know the maximum is 500, and so I was expecting that on the downside, you know, because it's just harder to get negative points, it's going to be like 150, maybe. And I was so far off. <laughs> Ten times that, Scott. <laughs> it was just ridiculous the way that we were theorizing the end of quiz strategy so that the the final quizzer remaining on the team is a captain who can have challenges that are going to be overruled and then go out with either an error or a foul in a blaze of glory, but still leave a 20A and a 20B that the coach is going to dutifully protest and get overruled on. It was just, it was beautiful madness. We're also coming up with funny ways that quizzers could foul and, and, and stuff like that, you know? <laughs> like, well, we're, right, we're making a big story out of it. You didn't assume, okay, they foul. You actually had to come up with a new foul each time, right? <laughs> oh, Not well, quite. we didn't figure out ten of them, but we were just joking about it. You know, our, our test team in our template example was PNW4, so we were coming up with silly ways that, that Craig Fisher, the, the coach of that team, 
could have you know spuriously protested and uh <laughs> and every and of course all those people were in the car so <laughs> made it a and great, then one yeah made it a good time one great moment was when the quizzer turned to me and said scott as a quiz master how how long would you let this go on before you put some stop to it <laughs> and i said it probably would be about one question until i would just turn the entire team's lights off or something I don't, all I, don't, I, don't, I don't think you can, though. You would be breaking the, the – you would be violating the rule book if you did that. Like, you would have to – I think as a quiz master, your hands are tied by the rule book, aren't they? I think they are, but I think in, in a circumstance that extreme, I would invent my own rule and trust that the meet director is going to back me up on it. And I think they would. Ooh, now that's yeah. interesting. That's the rule book is, is not written to assume that the teams are going to collude to do something like this, you know. Like, it would be a special, like, how, and the quizzers obviously wouldn't be able to do this without, like, a smirk on their face, you know? Like, you oh, would know sure. No, no, kidding. no. I mean, the quiz master would be fully aware of what's going on, right? I'm just saying, I don't think as a quiz master, you can legally do anything other than follow the rule book. Uh, like, like I think I think your hands are basically tied. Um, and if anything, like, uh, there part of me would almost want to see the glorif- gloriful, gloriful, that's not a word. <laughs> I would almost want to see the glory of the gory happen. Sure, but I, I, I think you're right that there's nothing that the quizmaster can do in accordance with the rulebook, and so I would, I would devolve to illegal means to put a stop to this as a quizmaster. Is what you I'm saying. You wouldn't want to see it through. You wouldn't just just for you know morbid curiosity. Um, I don't for the sake. Well, I mean, if all three teams are colluding, then maybe I don't care. But if it's if it's one team going out and doing this for the sake of the other teams, I would put a stop to it quite quickly. Sure. Okay. Fair. Fair enough. Like if two teams are taking it seriously and one team is doing this as a joke, then okay, sure, maybe it violates the spirit of quizzing or something. But um, well, of course, actually, no. Come to think of it, in every single case, you would have to be violating the spirit of the rules because you're forfeiting on purpose. Sure. And yeah, I mean, I think. I think um, we're missing the fact that as the the quizmaster, you can foul anyone you want for breaking rules. And I mean, so in in our hypothetical lowest scoring quiz, again, the officials have to be in on it. So you would just have to choose to not be in on it. Stop counting them as forfeiting a question, or start fouling them for additional reasons so they leave the quiz quicker. I mean. Well, sure, but in our hypothetical, we're talking about three teams that are colluding to do this. And so, I mean, if you've got to that point, I think you're, you've got to assume that the officials are in on it. Like, I, I think it's an entire room that's colluding to just climb Mount Everest or, I guess, <laughs> fall off of Mount Everest and fall to the bottom. Yeah, uh, visit the underworld, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, like, I almost want to script this. Did you script this out? But You have all these notes, right? Well, Roughly. it's they're super rough. Yeah, it's just a bunch of E's and F's and a r- running tally of the score uh, <laughs> on a score You know what sheet, we need but... to do? So I, I have a proposal. I think we need to script this out and perform this uh, as a as a stunt for fun at, at next uh, next year's Great West. It would take like three hours. <laughs> no, 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 no. You could do it fast. I think you could do it fast, right? Because like like if you if somebody jumps. 
intentionally like 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 you can foul on a jump very easily it's just a timing thing right so if you've got people orchestrating it and who are all in on it right like you can get the fouls very quickly you can easily say i'm i'm forfeiting this question the quizzer sits down the quiz master says okay you're forfeiting i grant you this uh then the coach stands up says i protest i have no valid protest and sits back down okay that's a minus 10 like i think you could actually fly through this fairly quickly and still actually be completely legitimate to the letter of the law i think i now that you say it i think we it both can be done pretty quickly and i think we should do it and have a team from each district represented and play out the theater so then, but here's the thing. If you have a team from each district, which I think would be fantastic and would be a wonderful, hysterical, like, I think everybody would completely lose it in the entire room. We would be laughing so hard. We would be crying. Um, but then who gets the honor? Which team gets to be the honor of actually being the lowest scoring team? Because, like, this would be the thing. Like, two of the three teams will not be the lowest scoring team. I, I think I think you draw straws. I mean, as much as I would like to claim it because it was PNW's original idea, I think you draw straws. Mm, I don't know. Maybe the first year we do this, maybe PNW should get the honor of being the lowest scoring team. We did come up with this idea. <laughs> well, well, here's let me heighten the stakes a little bit here. Let's let's go for the lowest possible cumulative score across all three teams. Does someone want to figure out that puzzle? Because that would be pretty fun to go for as well. I wonder what... I mean, it would probably be a very similar strategy to what we're doing already, um, but probably a few little details would be different. Yeah, and you'd definitely be testing the bounds of the rulebook because we were already trying to look into if there's one overruled, overruled challenge on a question, can someone else challenge on an entirely unrelated matter? Um, because if so, then you can have um, three overruled challenges and three overruled protests on every iteration of the question, or nine for each numbered question. But I don't know if, in practice, um, it is intended that there can be more than one challenge or protest, even on unrelated issues. Yeah, the rubric's a little unclear there. I don't blame them from saving ink on this one, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just a wee bit. All right, anything else on this one, Jeremy, or have we completely beat the dead horse? Uh, I mean, the whole topic from the beginning was was beating a dead horse. This is the dark side of quizzing. This is the um, the ultimate depths of human achievement that we're theorizing here. And um, I trust that presenting this information will make me a surefire <laughs> uh, bet to be asked to be on this podcast again. So, <laughs> well, you you can guarantee that is a, uh, that is true. Um, <laughs> We're, we're we're plumbing the depths of, of quizzing sorrow, um, the dark <laughs> side of quizzing indeed. Well, so guys, we have a, do have a few minutes left, so why don't we tackle a couple of uh, our, our, our uh, other topics that are on our list. One was uh, Kiever's strategies between district and out-of-district uh, competition. So Scott, you want to kick us off on that topic? Yeah, so... Within PNW, we we um, distribute a key verse list that specifically specifically calls out the verses and the types and even the ways that an, a finish this can start for our quizzers, and that's the only way those questions can be asked within our district. You know, we think there's a lot of value to doing it that way. I know that there are districts that do things other ways. They might have club lists. They might not communicate any sort of key verse list. Um, 
I'm not sure of all the different iterations. But then when quizzers come to Great Western and internationals, there is no semblance of a keyverse or study list distributed. And with specifically Great West and I believe Winter Nationals as well, those happen kind of in the middle um, or before each district is done with their district year. So as a quizzer, you may be interested in doing well at all levels. And I know specifically of a quizzer who um, jumps on a lot of key verses in our district, but while they could have done some extra study um, on an expanded list for Great West, they didn't want to because PNW still has um, our final meet of the year district champs, which actually constitutes a good two-fifths of our yearly average. Um, and I just don't know the best way. I'm kind of thinking coming at this as a district coordinator or someone planning a district, like what's the best way to orchestrate a keepers list both for in-district purposes and out-of-district purposes when they're kind of interspersed throughout the yearly schedule? Yeah, um, it's a tough issue because of the vastly different ways different question writers will write finish the verse questions. As we were talking about earlier with, you know, our pet peeves about the type distributions, you can make a list of all of the finish this is, you know, where, you know, you know, I am the way and the truth and the life, all of the ones where Jesus begins talking. And those are all great finish this is, but sometimes you'll show up at a, a meet and all the finish this is will be like totally random things that start in the middle of a verse that, you know, that should have been, or, or maybe shouldn't, not that they should have been, but, uh, but you were expecting them to be finished the verses because the, there's the first part of the verse is perfectly fine. So the questions don't end up being what you think they're going to be a lot of the time. And so I think in practice, the best, the most equipped quizzers to, to work on uh, finish the verse questions are ironically the quizzers who know all the material and can make a list of those they think are the most likely to be asked of each question type. Um, of course, that's not the situation with, the quiz, the key verse quizzers that we're bringing to Great West. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll perhaps defer that one to Griffin <laughs> to talk about, um, cause I'm trying to think through what some good strategies might be for that. But that's definitely what I've noticed. Uh, the best quizzers are those who know it the most word perfect and make a study list for those types specifically. Yeah, I completely agree, uh, with what Jeremy said there. I, I'm going to take it a little bit step further from sort of a macro perspective. I think that as a district coordinator, you sort of have to intentionally compromise the quality of what could be happening at something like a Great Western Internationals for something that I think will net greater value overall at the district level. I know that may sound kind of weak. Um, and, and the harm, quote unquote, uh, that, that, that doing that strategy at the district level provides at say something like a great west or at an internationals i think is small um and can be overcome certainly at the internationals level when you're talking about the top five uh and by a number of people at the great west level it can be overcome with it with additional study it's it's not that much of a detriment so in other words let me let me take a step back and try to maybe explain more of what i'm talking about not at a summary level, but saying like, imagine that your goal at a district as a district coordinator was, I will field the best possible team that I can at internationals and the best possible set of teams at say great West, right? Or, or if you're not in, if you're not lucky enough to be in a district that attends great West, something comparable to it. Right. Um, so 
in doing something like that, I would probably avoid having a keyverse list, or if I did, it would significant. Like it would it would be like every conceivable rational uh possible verse that could be a keyverse level would be included on that list to essentially get to the making the keyverse list almost not useful uh at the district level. And then as a result, I would be, you know, the the quizzers who were qualified to get to internationals would have the least amount of of, of delta uh, in their experience from, say, district-level quizzing to out-of-district quizzing. But I think in doing that, you end up sacrificing, to some degree, ways to motivate quizzers at the district level. And so I think overall, you might have a slightly, and I say really underline that word slightly, you might have a slightly stronger internationals team or a slightly stronger uh, set of teams at, at Great West or something, but your district will be less effective uh, in greater quantity than the effectiveness that you would have at the out-of-distance. And so, like, cumulatively, what is, the, what is the point of quizzing? What's our goal in doing all of this? It's to try to get the most number of quizzers to memorize the most number of, of, of verses, right? And I think we're able to achieve that most effectively at the district scale. We use great things like Great West and internationals as motivational uh, tools uh, for folks at the district level. And so uh, I would want to set up a strategy as a district coordinator that, that was most effective at getting the most people at the district level to memorize and then hope for the best at the, the out-of-district meets. Does that make sense to you guys? Totally. Yeah, it makes sense to me. So here's a follow-up question, Griffin. Thinking about district, um, the best interests of a district within the district, um, when constructing a keyverse list, should you either attempt to make it a, um, kind of a consistent number of verses year over year? Should you attempt to make it a consistent percentage of the total material year over year or neither or some other? I'm going to lean towards neither. I think it really depends on the material itself. I think the material itself will lend itself to uh, key verses or not key verses, right? I, I don't like the idea of saying... So imagine two different materials of, of roughly the same length. One where there were a lot of verses that stood on their own and one where... Uh, you know, equally divinely inspired uh, content, but the verses were much more connected together. They couldn't really be taken. A lot of them couldn't really be taken in isolation. They can't stand on their own. You would expect in those scenarios, uh, one would have more key verses than the other. And if we then try to say artificially, no, we're going to try to say, we're going to try to target some percentage, like 20% or 30% or whatever it happens to be, what, what's going to end up happening is you're going to suffer in both years because one year you'll have verses that really should be key verses that aren't included in the KVL. That's probably not the end of the world, but it's kind of sad, you know, that, that there, are, there are opportunities for more KVL or more key verses in the list. Uh, and that they don't get in. But then the other side of the equation is really bad, where you're taking, um, uh, you're trying to sort of artificially inflate uh, of the, the length of a keyverse in material that doesn't necessarily support that sort of size of a keyverse list. And then you end up with, with terrible questions that don't make any sense. Yep, I think that makes a lot of sense. Do we have time for two quick listener, listener questions that I think will happen in less than a couple minutes? Yeah, let's go for it. Sure. 
So this first one is from Aiden. He said, I'm just starting, this is kind of an old question, I think. Um, I'm just starting to write questions on chapter 15, and I notice something. The double unique word appears. I'm a little blurry on the technicalities surrounding this, but I'm pretty sure I can write the MA, the multiple answer question, one's what? Is that correct? You want to take this one, Jeremy? Yeah, so the interesting thing about unique words is that, strictly speaking, they don't have to be unique. If they, if they appear multiple times within the same verse, but nowhere else in the material, the rulebook says that still counts as a unique word. So it's actually within a verse that's important. So this means you do run into some weird circumstances where um, a word that appears multiple times is still a unique word. And in those cases, it is valid to write multiple answers on that. Uh, I think probably the best example I can think of is from Second Peter 2.1. So this material for next year, a little bit of sneak peek, um, but the, the unique word false. And the verse reads, you know, there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And the multiple answer, false what, is um, a, very, a very valid and I think a very good multiple answer. I think it's a wonderful multiple answer question. Um, and so now in this case, one's what? Um, uh, what? Do you know what verse this is, Scott? It's 1513, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Okay, yeah, so one's. That's definitely the kind of word that would be a unique word because just of the contraction and all that. Um, or no, it's not a contraction, it's a possessive, sorry. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so I would say it's a valid question I'm going to say it's a bad question just because there's so little information in it. Um, it's just this vague word. Um, so it's a little bit different than false what, whereas with false, like that's kind of a, a unique idea and concept. Ones is a bit of a uh, vague, unique word. It's kind of like till. There's some years where the word till, which is short for until, uh, till is a unique word. And you could write the question till what, but I think it's a bad question. In this case, I, I would say the same thing. It's it's valid, uh, but but bad. Now, would you consider this trickier misleading, given that the non-possessive ones also appears as a unique word in the same material? At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I definitely think you could make the argument that it is. Um, so, yeah. So I think you should not write you know words based off unique. Or you should not write questions based off unique words that are cognate um, with other with other words. They sound the same. Homonyms isn't that the the term? Sorry, I'm, I'm trying to like use the technical yeah, yes, it is. term. Okay, homonym. Um, so yeah, so words that are homonyms, you shouldn't write uh, questions based on that, even if you can tell which one is being asked by the phrasing of the question. So in this case, like ones what the older ones, like that doesn't that doesn't make any sense. You would ask the question what ones or which ones, instead of ones what. But even though you can tell from context, I still think that's, that's tricky. Um, so, so, yeah, in that case, I probably would say that it is tricky or misleading. I certainly would not write the question, even aside from that. But that's my take yep. on it. And I agree, and I think some might say that, well, ones what can be a multiple answer in this place, and in the other place, ones what is either never going to be a question, or it's going to be what ones as an interrogative. I don't think the argument that it's different types of questions has any weight here. I think the fact that a one-word interrogative question can lead a quizzer to do 
two different a one sorry just a one word question of any type can lead a quizzer to two different places because these words are homonyms means that you shouldn't write either because it's too tricky. Um, yeah, and there's, the, a, there's a similar um, example from Hebrews that you and I talked about back in the day, Scott. Um, in Hebrews 11, both the word passed, as in like he passed the test, and the word passed, as in like the opposite of future, you know, the past, both of those were chapter key words in Hebrews 11. So like past what, you could not tell which of the two chapter references it was based on, you know, the, how the question sounded. And I think it's actually different in the new NIV edition. Uh, one of the words is no longer the same thing, so that won't be applicable. But that's another circumstance in which we've run into that. Yep, that's a good example. And finally in this episode, I'll handle this question from Aiden. He had another one. A review of chapter 11 led me to this question. Can I write the question, this sickness will what? With the answer being, not end in death. I ask because of the rule that a multiple answer question cannot have a negative answer. I don't know if, if that applies to interrogatives as well. So my answer is, I think that um, the language in the rule book about it being an invalid question when the question is not answered, I think that was definitely written to make positive and negative multiple answers invalid. But the way it's written, just it's under invalid questions. And I think it would totally make this question, as you have written it, invalid. Because um, as written, this question is asking, what will this sickness do? And the answer is a negative. And that's the specific example kind of called out in the rule book. Um, you're answering a positive question with a negative. This will be invalid. Now, it's just a small alteration to change this question to this sickness will not what. And then now you're asking, what will this sickness not do? And it's end in death. And then you're not answering a positive with a negative. You're asking a negative and you're getting a positive. I kind of phrase that confusingly. But um, you're right that as you have written this question, this sickness will what that I would consider that to be an invalid question, um, even though it's an interrogative and not a multiple answer. Yeah, agreed. Yep, agreed here as well. All right. Well, with that, we are sadly out of time, but uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. And Jeremy, I want to thank very much that uh, for you to I, I want to thank you in ways that are not me babbling with words in random order. I want to thank you for <laughs> joining us as a guest on episode 36 and hopefully we'll hear you again on future episodes. Thanks everybody for listening and uh, thank you, Jeremy and Scott. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks. I'm glad to be invited back on and um, I expect great things for this podcast in the future and I hope I can be a part of it again. Thanks everyone. Have a good night. <laughs>